king we need is the king whose heart pleases God and who has God's spirit with him. you assume about someone by the way that they look in the business world when it comes to hiring and firing and salary different studies seem to reflect that we have a hard time looking past appearances for example why is it that one study in an economics and business journal finds that bank CEOs with above-average looks get paid 24% higher than bank CEOs with below average looks. Now, I'm not really sure how they measured that, but... But perhaps one reason that good-looking CEOs may get paid more is that they strangely could help their company make more money. In another study, it was noted that attractive CEOs have a positive and significant impact on stock returns when they first appear on television. So in other words, if a company's new CEO is good-looking, makes a TV appearance, in general, their stock shares rise. If the company's new CEO was maybe not so good-looking and made a TV appearance, I don't know, maybe stock shares would still rise, but maybe not as much. And it's not just with CEOs. A Harvard study titled Why Beauty Matters stated that workers of above-average beauty earn about 10 to 15 percent more than workers of below average beauty. And just a few paragraphs later, the authors state that employers wrongly expect good-looking workers to perform better than their less attractive counterparts. So many people in the business world expect you to do a better job at your job because you look good and so may offer a higher salary to people who look good and not even realize that they're doing it. And I don't know how the ins and outs of these studies were done, but I think they just put numbers on a human problem. We look on someone's outward appearances and we just jump to conclusions. And even though we know that someone's outward appearances don't truly reflect how they would do at a particular job, or who this person really is, we still make these unspoken assumptions. Now, a few thousand years ago, the prophet Samuel was ready with the same human assumptions that we continue to have to this day. God had a set of brothers lined up for Samuel. One of them was the next king. And Samuel thought he could tell at first glance who the next king was. But thank God that God does not see the way that we see. Thank God that he sees in a way that is different from us. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. You can also see the passage 
printed in your bulletin. 1 Samuel 16. We're pretty much halfway through the book of 1 Samuel, and we're at this key turning point in the book. A couple weeks ago, we considered Saul's, or God's rejection of Saul for his disobedience. This morning, we'll be introduced to the man who will be anointed to replace Saul as king. Let me begin with a a main point to help us crystallize what 1 Samuel 16 is teaching us today. And that main point is this. The king we need is the king whose heart pleases God and who has God's spirit with him. The king we need is the king whose heart pleases God and who has God's spirit with him. So for a bit of a roadmap of where we're heading, this main point will be split up into three points as we walk through the passage. Point one is the king we need. That's in verses one to three. Point two is the king's heart. That's in verses four to 13. And point three is the king who God is with in verses 14 to 23. So the king we need the king's heart, and the king who God is with. So let's begin with point one, the king we need. This point sets the stage for the rest of the story. So please look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So if you remember back to the last chapter when the Lord told Samuel that he was rejecting Saul as king, how did Samuel respond? He was angry, right? He cried out to God all night long. The end of chapter 15 concludes with Samuel continuing to grieve over Saul. Here at the beginning of chapter 16, we don't know exactly how much time has passed, but Samuel continues to grieve over Saul. But while there was a season for grieving, now God commissions Saul, now God commissions Samuel, sorry, to action. Samuel is to fill his horn with oil for the purpose of anointing a new king over Israel. God tells Samuel to go to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So Bethlehem, if you're thinking already of the Christmas carol, a little town of Bethlehem, well, we might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but we'll, we'll get there eventually. Bethlehem was a town in Judah. Rachel was buried on the way to Bethlehem. The Levite at the end of the book of Judges was from Bethlehem. And Naomi in the book of Ruth was from Bethlehem. 
And you might notice, if you see the different times that Bethlehem is mentioned in the Old Testament, it very often says Bethlehem in Judah. So spoiler alert, but the blessing given to Judah in Genesis 49 was that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In other words, it was part of God's plan that there would be no dynasty from the tribe of Benjamin. Instead, kings, Israel's kings, would come and stay in the tribe of Judah. The royal scepter would not leave Judah. And so this man, Jesse, he's from Bethlehem of Judah. So one might think that perhaps Samuel would be familiar with this prophecy in regards to the tribe of Judah. Perhaps his grief was changing to hope. It's interesting as well, the word translated provide here, in which God says he will provide a king from among Jesse's sons, could literally be translated that God sees for himself a king among the sons of Jesse. The way that God sees is a theme that we'll return to again in this chapter. But Samuel has, still has questions about this plan. He knows that if Saul hears that he's on his way to anoint a new king, then Saul will try to kill him. And so God gives Samuel an excuse. A sacrifice should accompany the anointing of a new king. So Samuel is just to say that he goes to sacrifice. Each step of the way, God will lead Samuel. And God will declare to Samuel who he should anoint. God sees the need for a king for his people, and God will provide. Unlike with Saul, who was the people's choice for king, now we await who will be God's choice for king. Consider for a moment with me God's great mercy to his people. The king the people wanted was the king that Saul was. He led the people into battle like the kings of other nations. And in response to the people's hard-heartedness, they had been given King Saul. But it doesn't seem like the people are asking for a godly king. It doesn't seem like the Israelites are showing evidence of true repentance over the choice of Saul. And yet, God is still planning to give the people better than they deserve. God, in his good and merciful providence, is planning to bless his people with a new king. And God has already looked and knows who the next king for his people should be. So this is the God who we worship. He sees our needs clearer than we do. We are blind to what we truly need most. But God sees, and he's the one who takes the initiative to show mercy and grace. We did not repent first, and then after that, God showed us mercy. Instead, God shows us mercy that leads to repentance. 
The second half of Romans 2, verse 4 states, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And amidst the sins of God's people that we read of in the books of Judges and 1 Samuel, we continue to still see over and over again God's kindness in leading his people to repentance. So it's a good and right thing to preach that you must repent. The word repentance has this picture of turning. If you're not a Christian, you should see your sin and we urge you to turn away from your sins. But at the same time, as we urge you to repent, we also trust that it's God's work in you making it possible for you to repent. And so if you do turn away from your sins, if you do turn to God, we don't give you a pat on the back and say, good job, soldier, for the effort you put in. We turn to God and praise God for what he did in saving you while you were still his enemy. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian and God is leading you towards himself, I would urge you to throw yourself upon his mercy. Don't trust yourself to be able to repent. Don't begin by trying to clean yourself up. Cry out to God to save you. And God in his great mercy does delight in saving sinners. The king we need may not be the king we think we need. The king we need is the king who God sees that we need. That was true thousands of years ago and remains true today. There's part of me that would like to reiterate some points that Phil brought up last week in his sermon from the book of Luke. But instead, I'll just say if you were traveling last weekend and missed it, you could listen to the podcast or listen to it again and be reminded what, what is our, our true need? What does God seek to do with our blindness? The king that would one day be born in Bethlehem would not be the king the people wanted. The people wanted a king who would save them from Roman rule. But King Jesus would be the king people needed, and so much more. We'll stop there and move to our second point. Point two, the king's heart. The king's heart. Uh, look with me starting in verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. 
And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So when Samuel gets to Bethlehem, the elders of the town of Bethlehem are visibly shaking. Perhaps they expect that Samuel has come to speak judgment on Bethlehem. Perhaps their concern is related to the distance between Samuel and Saul, the division between them. But whatever the case, Samuel just tells them what God had told him to say. There will be a sacrifice. Samuel invites Jesse and his sons. Of course, the future king has to be there. So all of Jesse's sons are supposed to be there. And when Samuel sees the oldest son, Eliab, he thinks to himself, that for sure, this is the man that God had sent him here to anoint. Samuel thought he could tell by a first look. But knowing what Samuel is thinking, God speaks and says, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Eliab is good-looking and tall, but does that sound familiar? Saul may have been head and shoulders above the rest of the men of Israel. Perhaps Eliab was a close second, but shouldn't that give Samuel pause? Saul looked the part of a king, but was disobedient to God. Eliab looks kingly in a Saul-like way, but that is not how God decides who should be king. God doesn't look at people the way that people look at people. We look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse continues to have his sons line up and pass by Samuel, and with each one, Samuel says, No, the Lord has not chosen this one until there is no son left. Samuel knows that God had told him to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, and so he asked Jesse, well, do you have any more sons? And almost like an afterthought, Jesse says that he does. There is the youngest one who's keeping the sheep. Now, when we, when we met Saul, he was unsuccessfully looking for his father's donkeys. When we meet David, he's not here yet. He's shepherding the sheep ably taking care of his father's sheep. Now Israel would need a king who could care for them in the way that a shepherd cares for his sheep. The image of a king caring for the people like a shepherd caring for the sheep is an ancient image not only found in the Bible but in other cultures as well. For example, the king of Babylon was referred to as a shepherd to the people in the prologue to the code of Hammurabi. 
and we will see more and more images in the Bible of the king as shepherd and of God as shepherd. So Samuel says they will not sit down until this young shepherd comes. Now here, the youngest is described as being ruddy with beautiful eyes and handsome. Now, but wait, you may ask, why still mention outward appearances? Don't outward appearances not matter? Now, I think it would be safe to say that outward appearances are, are still a part of who people are, for better or for worse. It's not the outward appearances that make this young man kingly material. And if you think you look pretty good, you don't have to feel bad about it. That's how God created you. David is still a good-looking young man, but his oldest brother looks much more like a king. Let's say it that way. So we finish this section with Samuel anointing David and God's spirit rushing upon David. God has chosen his new king. God looks past the outward appearances and into the heart. As hard as it may be, this is something I think would be helpful for us to consider here. And that is, can we look on the heart like God does? Now, in one sense, no. That's what makes God God. He knows exactly what is in Eliab's heart. And yet, at the same time, for the Christians in the room, shouldn't we be trying to get to know what's in one another's hearts? Shouldn't we be trying to move past first assumptions? If we as a church only look on one another's outward appearances, we'll be acting just like the rest of the world around us. So do we judge people simply based on the country they're from or their education or their occupation or their socioeconomic status? So how do we look past that? How do we look at the heart. In some ways, we're reliant on what people are willing to share about themselves. We cannot simply look into one another's hearts as God can. But we can begin by asking questions that help us understand the state of another person's heart. Now, getting a look at one another's hearts is not easy. On the one hand, we know from Jeremiah 17 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So when we get a better understanding of one another's hearts, some ugly things may come to the surface. For example, I doubt that Eliab could see some of the blackness in his own heart. And at the same time, Ezekiel chapter 36 speaks of the Christian being given a new heart and a new spirit. So there's an already and a not yet. Our heart transplants have already happened at conversion, so our hearts are not controlled by sin, but still, sin still has its pull. Sin would later even deceive David's heart into terrible sin, so that he would later pray in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
So as God's people, we know that there's still this deceitfulness in our hearts, but our hearts have already been made new. In our church covenant, we promise to share in an affectionate and an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another. In order for us to do this better, we need to have more heart-revealing conversations. So let's not stop with the simple assumptions we may have of other members who we've only had surface-level conversations with. Let's try to go deeper as much as we can. And how are we going to smash some of these assumptions? Now this may be obvious, but we need to talk to one another. It may begin by reaching out and beginning to, to get to know some members you don't know well right after the service. It may mean speed walking to the other side of the room to catch someone sneaking out, awkwardly saying hi and beginning conversation. And that's okay. Awkwardly expressing love is better than not expressing love. You can even go up to someone and start by just saying, let's go over there and grab a free cup of hotel coffee before we go. I mean, how often do you get to treat people to free coffee, right? Now, if you've been at this church for a while, I imagine you have friends who have been at this church for a while as well. Now, we could wait to say hi to each other. They have a lot of newer people to say hi to as well before we all make our way to the elevators. And I trust that as we show an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another, our conversations won't end with five-minute after-service chats. But we need to start somewhere, don't we? Perhaps some of our conversations can be trying to figure out when during the week we might be able to get together with another member. Where do they work? When is their lunch break or maybe coffee before work? We can brainstorm further opportunities to care for one another. And as we continue to walk with one another, may God give us grace to love one another in spite of how ugly and complicated, how messy our hearts may be. That brings us to the end of our second point, the king's heart. In the books of First and Second Samuel, we'll continue to get to see something of David's heart. His heart will not always be as pure and as true to God as it should, but his heart will remain moldable in God's hands. So let's move on to our third point, the king who God is with. The king who God is with. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, 
prudent in speech and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. First, I'd like for you to notice the contrast between how the second point ended and how the third point begins. So back in verse 13, it says that the Spirit rushed upon David from that day forward. Here in verse 14, it says that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The Spirit of the Lord had already rushed upon Saul in the past. For example, when Saul led the defeat of the Ammonites in chapter 11. But note the distinction with David. Verse 13 says that the Spirit rushed upon David from that day forward. The Spirit would continue to be upon David as king. And so at this turning point with verses 13 and 14, the king who God is with is not the rejected Saul, it is the anointed David. And it gets worse for Saul. Not only has the Spirit of the Lord left him, but a harmful spirit from the Lord is now tormenting Saul. It's difficult to say exactly what this harmful spirit is. Many think that it is an evil spirit. Some think that this may be referring more to some bodily discomfort that affects the spirit. But whatever this harmful spirit is, this is a reminder that even what is evil in this world whether natural or supernatural, is all under God's sovereign rule. Satan needed God's permission to afflict Job in the way that he did. And perhaps it's similar here with an evil spirit having wanted to afflict Saul, perhaps even much earlier in his reign. So some of you may be wondering, so if this is an evil spirit, is this evil spirit controlling Saul? And I think we see in the language of the passage that it's afflicting or tormenting him, but it's different from controlling him. Saul's spiritual life is continuing in its downward spiral, but there's still a way to go before hitting rock bottom. Now it's interesting that even Saul's servants give God the credit for this harmful spirit, telling Saul that this is a harmful spirit from God. Saul's servants understand that everything is under God's rule and God's hand. And then Saul's servants give a suggestion to find someone skillful on the lyre, and Saul says to do so. One of the servants mentions his familiarity with one of the sons of Jesse. Now notice how David is characterized here in verse 18. A man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence and the Lord is with him. 
I think that each of these descriptions has its capstone with the last words, the Lord is with him. That is the most important thing about this young man, David. Not the fact that he's a young warrior or that he's wise in his words, but the fact that the Lord is with him. It's interesting that a young shepherd boy could already have this kind of reputation in the king's court. So Saul sends for David. David came to Saul, and Saul really likes David. He uses the word love. We'll see that Saul doesn't continue to love David. But David becomes his armor bearer. Samuel warned of a king who would take whatever he wanted. And Saul does have the power to take. Saul takes Jesse's son David and places him by his side. But how's this for a turn of events? David, David has just been anointed king. And now he's asked to serve the current king. One would imagine that many men in this situation would be thinking of how to overthrow the king. If someone made the story of, if Hollywood made this into a movie, they'd be tempted to have David already plotting to overthrow Saul. But that's not what David's doing. David is simply serving Saul. When the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and he played it and the harmful spirit would leave Saul. One can imagine David the young man with God's spirit on him, praising God in song, and the harmful spirit leaving the room. Perhaps David even played some of the tunes that would become some of the psalms that he would later write down. The contrast is so clear here, isn't it? God's spirit has left the current king. God's Spirit is on the anointed king. And this matters so much more than David or Saul's appearances or height. This matters so much more than David or Saul's skill on the battlefield or skill on an instrument. What matters is that God is with David. Samuel told Saul in the previous chapter that the kingdom has been given to a neighbor who is better than he is. But the reasons that David will be a better man and a better king are rooted in the fact that God is with David. But friends, as good as David would be, we still need a king greater than David. David can be thought of as Israel's greatest king. It would be through David that God's promises to Judah would be fulfilled. But what does that have to do with us today, living around 3,000 years after David? We don't need a king to lead us into earthly battle. We need a king who will save us from ourselves, who will take away our sins and save us from the punishment of death. We need a king who is both the good shepherd and the spotless lamb of God. Samuel only had a foreshadowing of the importance of what he was doing when he anointed David. Normally the king is to listen to the prophet because the prophet speaks the words of God. 
Saul did not listen well to the words of Samuel. Later, David also would need to listen to the words of the prophet Nathan. Both Saul and David needed prophets to speak God's word to them, to point out their sin and call them to repentance. But there's one situation later in the Bible in which the prophet must listen to the king. And that prophet's name was John the Baptist. And so we read in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. John thought that Jesus should baptize him. But he listened to King Jesus and baptized Jesus. And it's here in Jesus' life, one of the places where we see this, well, it's here in Jesus' life that we see such a clear picture of God's Spirit resting on Jesus. And the Spirit of God would rest on Jesus for all of his earthly ministry. The king greater than David would never be in danger of having God's Spirit taken from him. And not only would the Spirit of God rest on Jesus, but Jesus himself had the authority to, with the Father, send the Spirit so that God would continue to be with his people. Jesus was and is God with us. And Jesus was not willing to leave his people as orphans when he left this earth. Jesus sent his Spirit to continue to speak what Jesus would have him speak. So as Christians, we have the Spirit of God living in us. Isn't that amazing? Not only was God with King Jesus, but King Jesus was God. And King Jesus made a way for God to be with us today. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, do you want God to be with you? Some of you may want to keep God at arm's length or, or farther away than that. But I would say that you don't yet understand how good God is, how loving and compassionate God is. For the Christian, God being with us is our greatest comfort in the darkest seasons of life. So what is it that we believe as Christians? And this is for Christians to always remember. And for those who are not yet Christians to hear. Consider the good news of what Jesus has done through how God is with his people today. Now in the very beginning, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. God the Creator had perfect fellowship and perfect friendship with his created humans. 
When the first humans disobeyed God, they rebelled against God, and because of their disobedience, they were separated from God. There was an angel guarding the entrance back. Adam and Eve were outside the garden, and outside the garden, life ended with death. Following the example of our first parents, we disobey God. We also sin against God, and we're also separated from God because of our sin. The punishment of hell is because in our sinfulness, we cannot enter the presence of a holy God. We must be separate from him. But Jesus came so that that separation needed to no longer be a permanent separation. King Jesus came to live with us, to be human, to be God and man, and to die the death that we deserved for us. Because he died the death that we, reserve, that we deserve, he made a way for us to approach the Father. Because Jesus gave us new hearts, because Jesus gave us his holiness, when we turn from our sins and believe in Jesus, we can again have fellowship with God. We can have God's Spirit himself living in us. So the hope of heaven is of being with Jesus forever. And until that day, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus has not left us on our own. The Spirit living in us is God with us. And God being with us makes all the difference in our lives today. The Christian speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. Because the Spirit is changing our very beings to become more like Jesus. And that bears good fruit. Perhaps you've thought to yourself after a good conversation with a brother or sister, after hearing her testimony or what God is doing in his life recently, we're amazed at what God's doing in someone's heart. It's because... God's Spirit is changing this person, starting with the heart. Out of this person's new heart flows good things. Being united with Jesus is such a wonderful privilege. To think on this unity that King Jesus prayed that his followers would have, you could spend some time reading and considering John chapters 14 to 16 this week. God abiding in us and we abiding in God. And God the Father and God the Son have sent the Spirit. Author Michael Reeves wrote in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, the Spirit's personal presence in us means we are brought to enjoy the Spirit's own intimate communion with the Father and the Son. The Spirit's personal presence in us means we are brought to enjoy the Spirit's own intimate communion with the Father and the Son. And he continues by saying, The new life the Spirit gives is a life of warmth, for it is his own life of delighting in the Father and the Son. Because of God in us, we have this taste, we have this experience of delighting in God. 
That is the joy of God being with us and in us as believers. It's a mysterious and wonderful union with the triune God. We've begun to enjoy it now, and we'll have the privilege of enjoying it in its fullness into eternity. Let's think on that. And brothers and sisters, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, for who you are and for what you have done. We praise you that because of your Son coming and living with us, dying and rising for the forgiveness of sins, we can enter into your presence. We can be with you. And you are with us. Lord, we pray that your Spirit will continue to to grow us in the knowledge of who you are. And that your Spirit will continue to bear fruit in us. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.